All right, amen, and good morning. I want to thank uh, the Story Worship Band for leading us in worship this morning, and for all of our crews, our whole team that has made these worship services happen. I believe this is our 12th one online-only worship um, since we began on March the 15th, and uh, what a crazy season it has been, and I just want to thank all of our staff and leaders that have made each week possible. If you're watching and worshiping online on Facebook or YouTube, be sure and drop our staff a note of thanks as well, just to let them know how grateful you are that they made this possible. And listen, if it's, uh, as I said earlier, if it's like your first or second time to join us at the story, it's a real honor that you would spend your time with us. I know that time is valuable, time is precious, and and uh, churches can be very weird. And uh, you may feel at times that church has been a waste of your time in the past. And if that's the case, I'm especially grateful that you made space for the story in your life, in your weekend, this Sunday morning. Uh, I hope that God speaks to you in some new and, and fresh way this morning. Um, I'm Eric. I'm the lead pastor here at The Story. You're going to hear from Pastor Gio after today's message. Toward the end of the uh, service, we're going to have a time of prayer, a lot of which is going to be about this, uh, this uh, crisis that we're in as a, as a culture, as a nation, in the aftermath of, of the killing of George Floyd. And, and so I hope you'll hang out for the end of the service uh, for that time of prayer. Also, I wanted to tell you about something uh, special we've been cooking up for a while now. It's launching tomorrow morning, so you need to know about this. It is a daily podcast that a lot of leaders, including Gio and I, are putting um, our, our input into, and, and, and our goal is to develop daily content and to make it available to you every morning in a daily podcast called The Story at Home. So you can find it now. It's live everywhere. It's live on iTunes, Apple Podcasts. Uh, it's live on Spotify. Uh, SoundCloud, everywhere you uh, look for podcasts, you'll be able to find it. It's called The Story at Home, and the first daily content will be released tomorrow morning. So uh, that's from Pastor Gio and I. Tomorrow's session will be. So y'all be sure and check that out. The purpose of it is to equip you uh, to, to inspire the people in your household to follow Jesus. And so we've realized church must happen more than just on Sundays, especially when we're taxed and stretched like we have been uh, during the past 12 weeks. So I hope you find that helpful. Today, we're starting a brand new sermon series called Lover, the Romance of God. I know there's a lot going on, a lot of heaviness, and this may seem like a light topic. It may seem a little out of touch given how heavy things are in the culture around us right now, but I actually think the theme of this series strikes at the heart of our deepest concern and our worst problems in our society. The premise here is that the Bible, more than anything else, tells the greatest love story that's ever been told, and that God is the original romantic, um, you know, person. He is the OG, like, rom hopeless romantic. That's who God is in the Bible, and, and you may not have ever heard that. You probably heard God is just powerful or uh, omnipresent, almighty, and all-knowing, and those things are true, but in the Bible, they, 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 the writers of the Bible suggest that God is something else as well. He's something more than just powerful. This God in the Bible is love. And I think this um, really needs to sink in with us because it, we've often gotten the message that God is a, a lot of other things before he is love. But when you discover the romance of God for the first time, you will never be able to unsee it. It'll rock your world. It'll change your life. And you were made for it. You'll realize you were made for it all along as we searched for romance in other places. We all have this hunger inside of us, right? Even pastors have this hunger inside of us for romantic love. 
We all want to feel the feeling of falling in love. We love that feeling of falling in love. Some of you love the feeling of falling in love. You've been falling in love your whole life again and again and again. And I get, you know, even though it doesn't usually work out well and it's not really my speed, I do get where that comes from, the root cause of it. Like, it's a beautiful thing to fall in love, to be in love, to feel loved by someone else, of course that feels good. And the reason it feels so good to us, according to the Christian worldview, at least, is because we're made for that. We're made for romance. We're made for that kind of love because we're made in the image of the original, hopeless, romantic God. 1 John 4.19 says, we love because God first loved us. And so the way Christians look at this uh, uh, cultural phenomenon of romance and, and romantic novels and movies and all this stuff is that these cultural, feeble, human attempts at romance and love, it's all good in, in a sense, but it's really just derivative of something much higher, something much greater, the eternal romance of us and God. And, um, and that's how Christians look at this. Now, if you've been in a secular person for any length of time, you've probably looked at it a different way, how I used to look at it, which is that Christian love, Christian ideas of romance are derivative of the cultural ones. And so if you want to write a great Christian music song, you just take a great romantic song and take out the words like baby and honey and replace them with Jesus. Like the Christians are the ones who are derivative, Right. Or some of you may be scientifically minded and you might be thinking, well, all forms of love and romance are really just derivative of this basic Darwinian drive that we have to propagate the species. That's really all that it's about. And that may be how you look at it. But from a Christian perspective, the original romance, it came from God. The original source of uh, our desire to love and be loved, it is from God. And so I want to look at two realities here. I think there's two things that come to mind. First is that earthly romance is overrated. And the second is that godly romance is uh, overlooked. So the notion that earthly romance is overrated should come as no surprise to anyone who's heard any number of my sermons. I'm not a big fan of the whole soulmate search. I'm not a big fan of how romance is often presented in popular culture. Um, But I just went to the trouble uh, for the sake of this sermon of uh, searching some of the top 10 lists of most romantic movies of all time. And what I discovered is that there's thousands of these lists online and they're all the same 10 movies in different orders here and there, but they're all the same 10 movies, especially like the top three. They all seem to just uh, change uh, places, but they're all the top three. The first one always seems to be The Notebook. Can we just talk about The Notebook for a second? It is... uh, is said to be the most romantic movie of all time. I even saw some men in the comments from our earlier service say that it was in their top 10 list of uh, all-time favorite movies. Um, but I've just kind of got a different take on the whole notebook thing. So Rachel McAdams and, uh, and, and what's his name? The handsome guy, Ryan Gosling. They clearly have a connection. But uh, lest we forget, Rachel McAdams was engaged already before They got hot and heavy together. She was engaged and he wasn't even a jerk like the guy in Titanic. I'll talk about that in a minute. But this guy was a really good guy. He was like a veteran and he loved her and he wanted her to be happy. And he even offered to forgive her after she cheated on him with Ryan Gosling. And and I understand that Rachel McAdams and Ryan Gosling had a physical hot connection in this movie, but it's 
Ryan Gosling. Like who wouldn't have a physical hot connection with him? Like he's the most beautiful man alive or whatever. So it doesn't really make sense. You would make a whole life decision based on that one physical connection and walk away from a, I'm talking way too much about this. Am I not? Do you feel it? I'm sorry. But I just am of the opinion that the notebook is trash and you can hashtag that. You don't even have to cite me. You can just use it like it's your own. Hashtag the notebook is trash. Fight me in the comments if you must, but you won't change my mind. All right, that is not romance. And neither is the second one on my list today. I've just got three, I'm not gonna do 10, all right? The second one's Titanic. We were all told that Titanic is one of the most romantic stories ever told, one of the most romantic movies ever made, that Jack and Rose's love would go on. And, and I watched it go on and on for almost four hours. <laughs> and at the end, I found out that Rose loved Jack enough to make him freeze to death in the Atlantic. Instead of just scooting over a smidge and letting him <laughs> up onto whatever she was floating on, that would have been nice. That would have been love. What happened was not very romantic, in my opinion. And, you know, then they threw that diamond in the ocean, which also made me mad because that made no sense. The third one that I, I kept seeing on these lists was Twilight, and this is one that makes me the most crazy, and this shouldn't be that hard to debunk, the supposed romance of Twilight, but it has been called the most romantic movie franchise in history by the esteemed readers of Cosmopolitan Magazine, according to the internet. And uh, I can't really believe I have to say this out loud, but if you think that real love means literally, literally um, sucking the life out of a person, uh, you really need this series more than, uh, than I thought we, we might have needed it. So all this to say, perhaps unnecessarily, I'm on a soapbox, but all this to say that all of our little efforts at love and romance our collective misunderstanding about what real love is. It's not just a joke. It actually has real repercussions. It actually really affects our relationships. It affects our society even. If we don't know how to love each other, well, because we've misdefined what love is to begin with. Listen, if you grow up believing that love is just a feeling and that you're supposed to feel emotionally connected to someone that, you're, uh, that you show love to, what happens then when you don't feel like it? What happens when you're faced with a situation where you know you should love your neighbor, but you've had a hard day and you're tired and you need a drink or you just, you're, you're worn out, like you just don't feel like loving that neighbor right now, but you know you should. Or what happens when the whole world seems like it's on fire and uh, people that you love who are brown and black in our culture are telling you about their real lived experiences and you just don't feel like you have the resources to feel the love you should feel for them. Even though you know it's wrong what's happening, you just don't feel like investing. What happens to love then, you know? What, how do you keep loving people whenever your feelings tank is all tapped out? That's, I think, a really important question for all of us, for our marriages, our friendships, our discipleship of Jesus Christ. So the, the idea that love is a feeling is breaking us. It's breaking our relationships, our marriages, our homes, and even us as a society. The second point I wanna make is that godly romance is overlooked. Listen, when we open the Bible and read it for what it is, we find a God who isn't just talking about love. He doesn't just say he loves us. This God in the Bible is love, and this is different. 
I know a lot of people are into mythologies and, and comparing Christianity and our narrative to other you know, religious mythologies. This God is different. This God isn't just pretending or saying he loves us. This God is love, essentially. His essence is love. So it's not just what he does, it's, it's who he is. So what we're gonna do for the next five weeks is we're gonna unpack that love. We're gonna explore how his love works, who his love is for, and specifically how he loves you. And every week we're gonna learn something about how we are called to love the people closest to us and to love the people God puts in front of us. And we're gonna do this by looking at four stories Jesus told in rapid fire succession in Luke 15. Most people think there's three, there's actually four. The first is the story of the shepherd and the lost sheep. The second is the story of the woman and the lost coin. And then you have the father and the prodigal son. And most people kind of stop there, but there's a fourth story Jesus tags on at the end that's every bit as important as the other three. In fact, it may even be more important. I think this is the whole reason for telling the first three is to get to the fourth one. It's the story of the older brother who didn't want to come into the party that his father was throwing for his no good brother, his, the prodigal, and, and how his father chose to love him as well. Now, the reason Jesus is telling these important stories in Luke 15 is because he has taken fire. He's taken criticism from his critics, the Pharisees and teachers of the law, who are upset about the people he has gone after, the people he has pursued and invited to follow him. That's what they're mad about. These people do not belong around a rabbi. These are the wrong kinds of people, according to Pharisees and and these lawyers. So let's pick it up, Luke 15, 1 and 2. The, the, the story starts this way. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around Jesus to hear him, but the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And that's in that part of the story is when Jesus decided to unload all these four um, parables onto the Pharisees and teachers of the law who were saying, these are not the right kind of people, Jesus. No upstanding rabbi should hang out with these folks, and you went out and found them. And he tells these stories to illustrate something to them that they are forgetting and missing entirely. And that is what we're going to talk about today, the pursuing love of God, the love of God that pursues us. Before we're religious, before we deserve it, before we're morally correct or politically correct, before any of it, there is a love of God that pursues us even when we're lost. You Methodist nerds, you'll call it provenient grace, the grace that chases you down before you even know what grace is. And this is the aspect of God's love that I wanna dig into today. See if you can find the pursuit of the love of God in each of these four verses I'm about to read. I'm gonna read one verse from each of the four stories, okay? The first one is Luke 15, four. Jesus says, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in open country? and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? The second story, Luke 15, eight, find the pursuit here. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a, a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And the third story from Luke 15, 20. So the, father, uh, the, the son got up and went to the father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. Where's the pursuit in that story? And finally, the fourth story, the older brother became angry and refused to go in to the party that the father threw for the prodigal. So his father 
went out of the party that he was hosting and pleaded with the older brother. All right, that's how the love of God works. It pursues us. Anyone, anyone who's ever been in love will tell you that love leads to pursuit. Love leads you to pursue your beloved in some really inexplicable, crazy ways. Love makes you do crazy things. Back in 1999, I fell in love with your other pastor, Giovanna. In 1999, first year of college. Um, and I fell in love with her, you know, a few days before she fell in love with me. Weeks, months, whatever, before she fell in love with me. I don't want to talk about it. Uh, <laughs> but I remember how I pursued her then, before she reciprocated anything, how I went after her. All day, every day, I just thought about her. I obsessed over her. Yeah, I stalked her a little bit probably, but I, I didn't do anything too terrible, I guess. But I did crazy stuff. I didn't have any money, but I took out a credit card to buy her stuff. A credit card, freshman in college, like a 47% interest rate. I just needed something to use to buy her dinner. And I would do anything. I would stop at nothing. I brought her food. I made her a mixtape. Kids, you can ask your parents what a mixtape is. I protected her. One time she went to the movies with some friends from college and I had to go work. That night I couldn't go to the movie because I had to pay off all that credit card debt. So I went to work. And uh, after the movie was over, she came back to the campus and she was like, she was shook. She was upset. I said, what happened? And she said that, that one of the guys had been sitting next to her and had got a little frisky, a little um, uh, un unwarranted, unwanted advances. And, uh, and, and she was really upset about it. She said it was very uh, insulting and, and uncomfortable. And man, I was livid. I knew the guy. He's kind of a jerk. And I, I knew him. And I was so mad at him. And I just got red in the face. I got all riled up. And so I marched over to his dormitory. And I banged on that door. And, and when they answered, I said, I need to talk to your RA. And then I tattled on him. I tattled on him so hard, you guys. Because when you're a preacher's kid and you've got my muscles, that's how you get back. That's how you get vengeance against someone to protect the woman that you love. All I wanted was for her to feel safe. All I wanted was for her to know I cared. And that I was there to protect her in a manner of speaking. <laughs> and so that's what I did. I basically followed her around for a solid month before she ever gave me the time of day because love makes you crazy. And in these stories Jesus told, apparently love makes God crazy too because the behavior demonstrated by the God figure in all four stories makes no logical sense. You know the song that we sing, The Reckless Love of God? And like, that's a weird title for a worship song. We're calling God reckless. That's not usually a compliment. And, and some Christian leaders have said, our church will never sing that song because God's not reckless, he's perfect. I'm not sure we're getting the point if that's what we think. The point of the song is to say, love always makes you reckless and God is love. Listen to what Jesus says about God in these stories. God is the shepherd, right? And I've never been a shepherd. I'm not really up on the latest in shepherding technology or whatever, but I gotta think it's a bad idea to leave 99 perfectly good sheep in the open country to go and find one. Why don't you take those 99 good, not lost sheep home first? Get them safe in the pen before you go out and find the one. That would make sense. But love doesn't make sense sometimes. Love makes you crazy. And that seems to be what Jesus is saying about the way God loves us, the way God loves you. And the same is true for the woman, right? She, she has 10 coins and she loses one. But what does Jesus say? It says she realizes she's lost one and she gets up and she lights a lamp and she searches for it. 
Why don't you have to light a lamp? It's nighttime. So she's getting up out of bed. She realizes before she goes to sleep at night, maybe she's counted her coins. She only has nine. She gets up. She lights a lamp, stays up all night, sweeping every corner of that house, searching everywhere desperately for that one lost coin. And I'm over here going, woman, just go to sleep. Like go to bed, search in the light of day. Tomorrow morning, it'll be easier then to find the coin. It's just a coin. It's an inanimate object. It's not going anywhere. You know, it'll be easier then, but she will not be denied this opportunity to search for her lost coin. She needs it. And that's what Jesus says God is like. Then of course you have this father, this father, the prodigal's dad, right? Who is completely insulted, disgraced by his son, his no good son who's taken his inheritance and squandered it on loose living, the Bible says. Women and booze and stuff, partying. And, and so he's been an idiot. He's played the fool. And then he comes home and, and any self-respecting patriarch of a family in the first century would have stood Pat. He would have stood his ground, two feet on the ground, and, and waited for his no good son to come to him and beg and grovel for forgiveness. What does Jesus say this father does? Even for this no good sinner of a son, he bolts in a dead sprint to embrace his son as soon as he can. He throws his arms around him and he kisses him and he welcomes him home with a party. That doesn't make sense. It makes him look even more foolish in the eyes of the culture then. And then, of course, he throws the party. He's enjoying the party. But then he gets word that his other son, the older brother, won't come into the party because he's resentful. And so what does he do? Instead of just being ashamed of his older son or instead of disowning his older son who has disgraced him by not accepting the invitation to a party, he goes out of his own party. Faux pas at the time. Goes out of his own party to go and try and get his other son to come under his roof again. That's all he wants. That's all the father wants is both of his sons to be under his roof again. Both of his sons would be with him again in his house. That's all he wants. And until he has that, he'll go crazy and he'll do the craziest things to show us his love, all right? So this is what Jesus is telling us about the character of God. And I think we better pay attention. God is not some like hoity-toity, like religious dude in the sky who wants you to get your life together first before he loves you. This God of ours is a, is a crazy shepherd. He's a neurotic woman. He's like, a, he's like a lovesick, desperate father. And so in light of this conversation, I really want to ask you two questions. And this is kind of where the rubber meets the road a little bit for us. Practical questions for you to consider and reflect upon. And I really hope that you will. Get a notebook out or something because this is going to be a little bit of a homework assignment, okay? The first question I want you to wrestle with today is how, as you look back on your life, how has the love of God pursued you? Even perhaps before you knew about God at all or believed in him. How did God show that he wanted you then, all right? And the second question is, how are you pursuing those you love like God pursued you, okay? So the first question, let's deal with that briefly, all right? Can you look back on your life and remember a time when God um, made a way for you? And you only see it in retrospect, right? Because in the moment, you think it's coincidence. You think, wow. I normally take that road home, but today I decided to take this scenic route home. And at the spot where I would have been on that normal road, there was a fiery crash. I probably should have been in it, but wow, I'm lucky. You remember those moments? Those spine tingling, chilling moments where you realize what might've been, but you're protected, you're secure, you're in his hand, right? We don't even see it in the moment. Like, 
Have you ever had a need, like a financial need, and like your lights were going to get shut off for a $217 balance or something, and then somehow $218 shows up at your house or in your pocket or somebody comes through for you in unexpected ways, and you're like, wow, what a coincidence. And taking one at a time, I guess they can be explained as coincidences, but if you look back today at all the years of how you've been protected, how you've been pursued, how you've been looked after, it's going to be harder and harder for you to chalk all of those instances up to mere chance. Truly, his grace has gone before us. Truly, we've been taken care of more than we even can acknowledge. Listen, many of you know I, I uh, had my soul saved by Jesus in, in uh, 2013. A church rat my whole life, I had never truly given my whole heart to Jesus. I didn't even know what it meant in my youth. And as I grew up, I had more doubts than I had answers. And so I just ran from Jesus and I, I played the part as best I could, but I didn't really receive him into my heart until the Holy Land trip in 2013. But as I look back at how God even made that happen, it's amazing to me because I know that God knew my heart then. I know that he knew the hurdles. There were three at least. And the first one was financial. I was making 40,000 a year and we had two little kids. There wasn't a lot of wiggle room in our Huffman family budget for international escapades. And the second hurdle would have been my own pride. God knows me better than anybody. He knows I am not the type of preacher. I've never wanted to be the type of preacher that organizes these little emotional little uh, pilgrimages to overseas and spends all this time and all this money instead of spending it on need back home. You know, I was kind of a political activist at the time, a social activist. And I thought all that time and money should just be given to the poor and we should stop doing all these religious trips and stuff. And so I made an identity out of that. And so God had to find a way to overcome that hurdle. And the third uh, would, have, would have been, uh, I guess, my own cynicism. Um, I was a cynical person then. I still am sometimes now, but worse than. And God knew that he was going to have to find a way to get my hard heart to open up in the Holy Land. He knew that if I had ended up on one of those typical religious tours where the tour guides take you to all the tourist traps and you end up waiting in line to buy your own personal thread from the Shroud of Turin for $40, like I would have checked out of that trip on day one. I wouldn't have absorbed a single word. And I look back at how God made that trip happen. I know he wanted me there. So what did he do? He found a way to get me over there, all expenses paid through the generosity of some friends and an organization that, that paid for me to go over. And why did they pay for me to go over? Not to have some sentimental religious excursion or pilgrimage, but to study the plight of Palestinians in the Palestinian-Israel conflict. He knew my heart then as a social activist, and he knew that's what would get me there and open my heart to what he wanted to show me. And so he arranged for that to happen. Right? And then, you know, dealing with my own cynicism, he arranged for me to have a, a tour guide, probably the only Holy Land tour guide who has the same penchant for cynicism that I've always had, but his cynicism led him to deeper faith. He had overcome so many of the questions that I was still stuck on. He had this scientific mind that loved, uh, you know, the, the architecture and archaeology of the time, and he led us through to the real sites and not just the tourist traps. That's how he got me there. That's how he saved me there. I look back and I see it now. I didn't see it then. Some of you have had similar experiences. I'm overwhelmed by it, especially by the fact that seven years later, this year in January, which seems like <laughs> January 2020 seems like a decade ago, well, we went back to the Holy Land. I got to stand in that same spot where I said, my God, it's all real. 
and where I received Jesus as the true like savior of my life, the center, the Lord of my existence, where he saved my soul. And this time I got to go back there with 60 people from the church that I planted after he saved my soul. And I got to show them the space, the, the, the place where I received Jesus as my Lord. And not only 60 people from the story, but I got to take my wife back with me this time. I had shared that story with her a million times and she wasn't there with me when it happened. I got to hold her hand and tell her exactly where her husband became a believer in Jesus. Exactly where I stood when I sent her that text message. Everything's different now. My God, God is looking out for me. I remember the feeling of being so secure in his hand that day, so cared for, so loved. And I think when you look back on your life and realize how he's guarded every step and made a way every time, you'll feel the same sense of security. Maybe it's the security you've been lacking. And so I encourage you, I'm challenging you right now to sit uh, sometime today or, or, or this week to sit and reflect on your life. Look back in as much detail as you can on all the ways that God has pursued you, cared for you, protected you, provided for you, maybe even when you didn't even acknowledge him at all. I'm encouraging all of the, the story Houston to make a list of some of the ways God has come through, the ways he has pursued you. And then let that list become a prayer for you this week a prayer you pray to God, a prayer of gratitude where you thank him, maybe for the first time, for all the ways he's gotten you through by his love. The second question I wanna pose for you today is a little more challenging probably, and that is how in light of God's pursuing love for you, how are you pursuing the people in your life, the people you love, particularly those in your inner circle, your friends, family, those under your roof? How are you pursuing them? Are you pursuing them at all? We're called to love others the way God first loved us. And so if he pursued us, we're called to pursue with love, right? I remember pursuing Giovanna when we were dating. <laughs> I pursued her when she was my fiance. But I can't say that the same hot pursuit has continued throughout the marriage, which is, which is terrible because I look at the way God has pursued me. He didn't stop pursuing my heart whenever I said yes to him in Capernaum in 2013. He wants more of me all the time. He's always pursuing me. Love is always active. Love never leaves room for just passive assumptions, you know? Sometimes we get into that place in our relationships where we used to pursue people that we no longer do. We just think they know how we feel. They get it. They know where my heart's at. No, that's not love. That's not how love works. Don't be deceived. Love is always active in pursuit. 1 John 3.18 says, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. So friends, how are you actively, truly pursuing the people that you're called to love? Are you checking in on them? Or are you just checked out? Are you asking questions that matter? Are you listening to their responses and asking follow-up questions in return. When they ask you questions, are you using those two words that have killed more relationships than any two words in the English language? I'm fine. Delete those words from your vocabulary. Be real, be honest, go deeper. Some of you have never done that before. You don't even know what it sounds like, but I promise you the, the feelings are there. The words are there if you turn off the TV and shut your computer and get rid of your phone and say them, it's there. 
And that's where the deeper pursuit happens in loving relationships. And that can apply to marriages as well as our relationships with our kids and our Christian brothers and sisters and those we meet on the streets. That applies to all of our relationships. So I just want to say that I think this conversation matters more than you might imagine at a time like this. Because if I asked you what it was that's gripping our nation right now, What's the biggest challenge we're facing right now? I imagine if you thought about it, you'd probably say fear, right? Fear is everywhere. It's our greatest enemy. And we don't know what to do with it. We don't know what to combat it with. We feel powerless in the fight against it because it's all we ever see. Well, long ago, the Bible gave us the antidote to fear, the only antidote to fear. First John says that perfect love casts out fear. There is no room for fear in love because agape, perfect love, the love of God casts it out. We need to overcome the fear that is wrecking us and separating us. And the only way to do that is to learn to love more perfectly with agape love, the way God first loved you. And so I pray that you're open to considering the ways as you look back, the ways God has pursued you with perfect love and made a way for you to be here right now, absorbing this message, being transformed by his grace. And I also pray that you're honestly assessing the relationships you're in and the ways you're choosing to love not based on your feelings or emotions, not even pulling out of your own reserves or ability to love, but pulling out of the great, vast, unlimited reserves of God's love and loving the world around you the way God first loved you. You're loved more than you know. You're called to love and change the world probably more than you know. I pray that you open your heart to his love. You let him show you how to pursue the hearts of those around you in the same way that he has never stopped pursuing your heart. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for teaching us something about your love today. It is crazy. (laughs) It is reckless. It's wild, unbridled, unlimited, inexplicable, and is wonderful to be so loved, to be reminded that we have nothing to fear when we are loved by you. Show us, Father, how to love our spouses, our children, our friends, co-workers, strangers on the street with the same pursuing, persistent love with which you've loved us. That's the only way to change this broken world, to bring healing. Thank you, Father revealing this truth to us today. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.